We are on our last sermon for the weekend now. It's been a pleasure to be here and to consider the gospel. That's really what we have been talking about this whole weekend, is the gospel. And we've been thinking of it in light of God's sovereign freedom to save whom it is that he desires to save, according to what the scriptures tell us. And so this far, and we've been doing that, of course, in light of the canons of Dort, in light of historical theology, and historical theology helps us to understand ministerially what it is that we should be thinking of, and and as we think of the progression of God's truth in the church, and how it is that people have come to proclaim it. But of course, in all of this, our exegesis and our hope of these doctrines is found in the scripture. And so we've looked at so far in the canons, unconditional election, God's predestination of certain people unto salvation, and then reprobation, the other side of that coin, in which he doesn't choose them unto salvation. We've looked at the scope of the atonement. And if you remember, the canons consider that really just in light of Christ's satisfying of justice. God is both just and the justifier of the wicked. There had to have been payment for sin for God to remain holy and also loving at the same time. And then after that, we considered the total depravity and irresistible grace as we considered man's corruption and then conversion. And then it all boils into what we're going to talk about this morning in the fifth main point of doctrine. And this fifth point happens to be the least controversial of the, the five. This is the one that everybody wants to affirm, unless, of course, you're Arminian. But most modern Protestants today, even if they reject Calvinism, they want to claim what this last point teaches. And it's pretty popular even to talk at winter camps and summer camps even about this specific topic. I'm trying to think. I've probably been to at least 20 at least 20 camps, if you combine summer and winter. And at most of them, they won't even use the word sin. They, they, they talk about a need of conversion and repentance, but a lot, or they don't talk about repentance. Or, but a, what a lot of them end up doing is actually sounding a lot like what most modern pulpits sound like. And again, that's that therapeutic moralistic deism. Most of the sermons are about like how to do a certain thing or just rank moralism, how to be better. But that's not our problem, you guys. Again, our problem is sin. And the point of the gospel, the point of Christian preaching and teaching should be that reconciliation that we have offered to us in Christ. That is the, the greatest need. And it's good for you guys to be thinking about these things now. As young people, I mean, we have probably an from about 10 to 8 or 20, I guess, as far as the, the age range of students that are here. But it's, it's never too early to stop thinking or to start thinking about these things because this is the heart of Christianity. This is what we need to be focused upon. This is what we need, these, these things, this discussion that we have been going over. And so even though most camps won't even touch on the topics that we have been dealing with in favor of just being trying to be moral and and urge a some sort of a decision one thing they usually talk about is the perseverance of the saints though they don't use that term they'll say instead eternal security 
or you know they'll they'll say once saved always saved and that's kind of good but it could be problematic and so let me frame this in light of normal camp sermons that i've seen so imagine you've been at a camp for you know like this from since friday and you've had a sermon on friday a couple on saturday you've been listening to some youth pastor for two or three messages that have been overall pretty short and they've been filled with stories about the fun or the cool things that he's done. Maybe he's talked about how hot his wife is. Maybe he's done some illustrations where kids' safety could be put into uh, jeopardy. And, you know, he's talked about the, the problems of life, the difficulties of life. Not really sin, but just the problems you might have at school and trying to fit in and, and things like those. And then he's talked about how amazing God is. And how amazing you are because God died for you because of the problems that exist in the world. And then on one emotional night where the music is ramped up and the lights are turned down, the speaker will usually offer some sort of an invitation. Uh, an invitation to have a better life in Jesus. Again, remember, it's really mostly about you. And it's emotional. And one of the things he does is that he'll say, when you accept Christ, you're always his. You just have to accept him, which of course actually really isn't a biblical idea, this notion of accepting Christ. Uh, it's receiving Christ. It's acknowledging who Christ is. That's really the language that we see in the Bible. And if he says that if you do that, and by that he means if you become a Christian and Christ saves you, he'll never let you go. And about that last part, well, that's 100% true. And so he'll ask everyone to put their heads down so that it's private but he wants to see if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, and all you have to do for it is raise your hand, or you know walk the aisle, or pray a prayer, or you know throw your stick in the fire, or ring the bell at Jeunesse. There's always some sort of external act that is accompanied at these things for some reason. And now because you've taken this step, uh, this notion of once saved, always saved, is theirs, no matter what you do or say about it after that, no matter how you live your life. And then you go to, hopefully, a real church, and you learn about sin, and you'll see that it's not all roses for Christians. And so when you go to camp the next year, there's doubts about your salvation. And you should doubt, and because most likely we've sinned, and we've you know, some indulged the flesh, we live in the world so to varying degrees. But there's that once saved, always saved doctrine. And so these people are then meant to think they're just merely backslidden and they need to recommit. And there's a lot wrong here. Heavy emphasis on fruit inspecting and legalism for one. But the point here is that eternal security is not ours because of something that we've done, which is what it, the, the usual message is at many churches and especially at camps. We can't put the emphasis on that, God is not obligated to redeem us because we walked an aisle or even were baptized. You know, sorry, our Presbyterian friends. It's not a magic formula that forces God's hand. Eternal security is in fact true. And yes, once we are saved, we will always remain in that state. But the reason for that is because it's what God has done in light of the other four main points of doctrine that we've already discussed. And so let's consider what Dort says. To begin, we're going to consider the first eight articles. I'll add some comments in between them, but we're going to read the first eight. And so again, this is on 
the perseverance of the, the saints. Article 1 says, The regenerate, not entirely free from sin. These are those people whom God, according to his purpose, calls into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and regenerates by the Holy Spirit. God also sets free from the dominion of slavery and sin, though not entirely from the flesh and from the body of sin, as long as they are in this life. So in other words, if you're a Christian, expect to still, to still sin. Expect to struggle against sin. 1 John 1.8 reminds us of that, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Article 2, the believer's response, our reaction to sin's weakness. It says, hence daily sins of weakness arise, and blemishes cling even to the best works of saints, which is a reminder that our only boast is Christ, that we can only have our hope in Christ, because even our best works, even our best good works, are tainted by sin. It says, giving them continual cause to humble themselves before God, to flee for refuge to Christ crucified, to put to the the flesh to death more and more by the spirit of supplication and by holy exercises of godliness and to strain toward the goal of perfection until they are freed from this body of death and reign the Lamb of God in heaven. So it points out then that God even has a purpose in sin remaining in the Christian's life. It's there to remind us of the gospel. God never wants us to forget the gospel. The gospel should always be in the front of our minds. The gospel isn't something that you just need at the very beginning of your faith, and then you leave it behind to go to bigger and better things. The gospel is there to nourish us and to strengthen us throughout the Christian life. It's to keep us from getting puffed up in self-righteousness. It gives us a continual cause to humble ourselves. And the drafters of the canon here are certainly thinking of 2 Peter uh, 1.10, where Peter writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. And when we sin, what do we do with that? Do we minimalize it and ignore it? Act like it doesn't matter because, you know, we've made a profession of faith? No, you know, the, the true Christian in that moment, when they're aware of their sin, we flee for refuge in Christ, and, and we seek to put the flesh to death, not in our own strength, but in the strength that the Spirit provides unto us. We already read 1 John 1.8 last night. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not like the Roman Catholics think where you must go to a priest, a pastor to confess your sins. It's good to share those sins which you're struggling with other believers, certainly, so they might help you pray. But because of Christ, because of the atonement that he's made for you, and because of the grace that is now irresistible unto you, you can go, you go right to God, your Father, and you confess your sins unto him and ask him for strength to overcome them. Article 3 is called God's Preservation of the Converted. It says, Because of these remnants of sin dwelling in them, and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful mercifully strengthening them in grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. 
Pastor John MacArthur has said it well here when he said that if it was up to us to keep ourselves saved, that we would have lost it immediately after receiving it. If we are left to our own resources, friends, we could not remain standing, and that is what the canons are wanting to assert as well. Article 4, the danger of true believers falling into serious sins. True believers may fall into serious sins. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a believer. So we read, The power of God strengthening and preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh. Yet, those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions, they cannot by their own fault depart from the leading of grace, be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. Part of the reason, I think, for that, honestly, is the anemic preaching that is involved in most congregations. Because people's eyes are off the gospel. And so they, they're more prone to Christians. They're more prone to fall into grievous sins. But, we continue to read, For this reason they must constantly watch and pray they may not be led into temptations. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission, they sometimes are so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in Scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into sin. This is a good way to be humbled, I think. And a needed reminder for us to remember the fear of the Lord. If David and Peter could fall into sin, that should tell us that we are capable of doing the same thing, right? Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, where he describes his struggle against the flesh. If these men, whom God used in great ways, and were certainly, we would say, true believers, we should be aware of our own propensity to do so as well. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer, even, Jesus instructs us in his, that model on how we should pray. Lead us not into temptation, because God is sovereign, and he is the one who is decreeing all things, and we need his help to avoid sin, to avoid the desires of the flesh. And he's glad to give it, and when he does not, part of that, like we talked about last night in our discussion time, is part of his sanctification in our lives as well. And again, it's good that sin remains, as we've already said in the canons, because that is there to humble us. I, mean, I wish, no, there was no sin, but the fact that sin does remain, God uses it for good in our lives. Uh, to humble us and remind us of the gospel and to keep us from boasting in self-righteousness. Article 5, the effects of such serious sins. By such monstrous sins, however, they greatly offend God. They deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time. Until after they have returned to the right way by genuine repentance, God's fatherly face shines again upon them. So it is possible, as Dort affirms and Scripture proclaims, that we, by giving into sin, can grieve the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, right? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Paul says that to this church in Ephesus because it's possible, because sometimes people do that when they give themselves into sin, true believers even. 
But the promise of God and the surety of the hope that we have in Christ is that when we repent, we can have assurance that God's love is still on us, that we have not somehow departed from God's favor. Article 6, God's Saving Intervention. For God, who is rich in mercy, according to the unchangeable purpose of election, does not take away the Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does God let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification, or commit the sin which leads to death, that is, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and plunge themselves, entirely forsaken by God, into eternal ruin. So again, election is not based upon conditions that we meet, right? It's based upon God's free choice and the pleasure of his will. And so the good work that he began in us, he will take it unto completion, as the Apostle Paul writes into the church in Philippi. There, is, there are times in the Christian's life where we are grieving the Spirit, and God in those times has not abandoned you. You don't need to be re-saved. If you are saved, God is still persevering you through those times. And why? It's because of what Christ has done in the atonement. It's, it's all God. It, it makes sense to me, at least, that if, if you have some say-so in the matter, then okay, well, God can back off, and that say-so could be something that leads you totally away from the from the gospel and from God, which is what the Arminians teach. The Arminians were teaching that you could actually lose your salvation, that God doesn't persevere everyone to the very end. But that's not what scripture says. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of finish, as Paul says to the church of Philippi. Article 7, Renewal to Repentance. For in the first place, God preserves in those saints when they fall the imperishable seed which they have been born again, lest it perish or be dislodged. Again, think about like the parable of the sower that we talked about last night. The seed, the imperishable seed, is that gospel that has taken root in the heart of a person through the new birth. Secondly, by his word and spirit, God certainly and effectively renews them to repentance so they have a heartfelt and godly sorrow for the sins they have committed. Seek and obtain through faith and with a contrite heart forgiveness in the blood of the mediator, Experience again the grace of a reconciled God through faith, adore God's mercies, and from then on no more, eagerly from then on more, eagerly work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, that idea from Second Peter one ten. And so this is this article is really similar to the ones that we've that we've already read. In, in some ways it's summing them all up and reminding us of God's humbling purpose in permitting sin in us, so that we might never lose sight of the cross, and the complete reconciliation that is offered to us there. We must always, when we gather together as a church, hear about Christ preached and all his benefits. We don't ever want to lose a theology of the cross, because that is where our hope lies. Our hope in this life is that we're reconciled unto God through what Christ Jesus has done apart from any good works of ourselves. Because once we start to have any sort of hope in our efforts to get us right with God, well then when we fail, and we will fail at times, that hope is going to diminish. Your assurance will be pressed down. And I don't want any of your assurance to be happening in that sort of, in that sort of way. I would have for your assurance, if you're trusting Christ here this morning, 
I would have your assurance to always be on who Christ is and what it is that he has done for you. It's so important. Then Article 8 is called the certainty of this preservation. So it is not by their own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally, nor remain in their downfalls to the end and are lost. With respect to themselves, this not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen. God is the one who preserves us. God's plan cannot be changed. We talked about that last morning, I think, that God is immutable. His decree of election doesn't change. The calling, according to God's purpose, cannot be revoked. The merit of Christ, as well as his interceding and preserving, cannot be nullified. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated nor wiped out. So last night, uh, you guys played a game. You had to put a verse together. I think only one group was able to do it, actually. But you remember what that verse was? Romans 8.30, right? We call that passage the golden chain of salvation. We've referenced it a number of times. It's an unbreakable chain of actions done by God himself. And notice in it, they're all past tense, communicating to us the finality and the surety of the work of salvation that God does in us. So it's Romans 8.30. And so again, notice the past tense verbs that are in here. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also, or through whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you just follow the links in the chain, and maybe looking at them backwards actually will be more helpful even. Someone who is glorified has passed from this life to the next, and at that point their fallen nature is gone. Properly speaking, they have a glorified nature. They're no longer, if we're thinking of our topic about ability that we mentioned a, a few days, or yesterday, they're no longer even able to sin, and they don't even have a desire to sin. They're those saints that are in heaven in glory now. Um, they're enjoying a, even a closer fellowship with God than Christians do even here and now. And that means that all who are glorified were first justified. They were declared righteous by God, saved and reconciled unto him through the work of Christ and the gifts of salvation that he gives to us. Your sins have been atoned for, and that atonement was definite, and so your justification is secure. That atonement wasn't just dangled out in front of you, and all you had to do was snatch it up and grab it, so that if it was, how secure is that atonement? I mean, if you had to grab it, could you possibly let go? No, but you're justified because it was definite, and so your justification is secure. And we know it was because those who are justified will be glorified. If you're truly justified, you will be glorified. That's Romans 8.30. And then, before that, if you've been justified, that means that you have been called. God's, God has become irresistible to you in some sense. You were chosen, and so God acted upon you in such a way that you desired him. God has, through the gospel effectually worked in your hearts so that you responded to the gospel call. And that ended in your justification, which again leads to your glorification. 
And then if you've been called in that way, it means that you were predestined, not post-destined, not chosen based off of something that God saw you were going to do, but you were predestined before you were going to do anything. And so that un- is that unbreak and that is unbreakable because it is God who is accomplishing it. From predestination all the way to glorification, God preserves the saint, the Christian. As article as article 8 says, God's purposes cannot be revoked. God preserves his people. He keeps them saved even in light of the sin that remains, and he uses means through that sin, to further sanctify us and then to make us confident in the gospel. Not confident in ourselves, but confident in what God has done for you. And that's what the next section goes on to explain even. Article 9, the assurance of this preservation. Concerning this preservation of those chosen to salvation and concerning the perseverance of true believers in faith, Believers themselves can and do become assured in accordance with the measure of their faith. By this faith, they firmly believe that they are always and always will remain true and living members of the church, and that they have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so let me here try to make a point that if your assurance, if your hope for you being a Christian resides in the choice that you made. If you feel that is the determining factor that made you a Christian, well, what, if when you, what about when you're not really feeling it very much one day? When sin has crept up in your life and you know, the blessings of salvation don't seem all that desirous unto you. This is why it's so important to be understanding these doctrines that we have been going through. Because we remember even in those times that our salvation isn't dependent upon what it was that we did to earn it because we didn't do anything to earn it. It was what God has done for us. He began it in us. And we know then even in dark moments, in dark times when we have sinned and we know that we've done what the Lord would not have us to do in his law and we feel guilt and bad and shame about that, that the promises of the gospel then don't depart from us. Again, while thinking yesterday, that our cry should often be, why me, O oh God? Why, why save me? Even now as a Christian, you, that should be a thought in your mind because again, we weren't deserving of it. And even after Christ does, does save us, it's not like we become deserving of it and live our lives in such a way that we never need the gospel or that we never need to be reminded of Christ's righteousness. We always need to be reminded of Christ's righteousness. Article 10, the ground of this assurance, which is what we were just talking about as well. But accordingly, this assurance does not derive from some private revelation beyond or outside the word, but from faith in the promises of God, which are very plentifully revealed in the word for our comfort from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, tes- excuse me, testifying with our spirit that we are God's children and heirs, which is Romans eight sixteen to 17. And finally, from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. 
If God's chosen ones in this world do not have this well-founded comfort that the victory will be theirs and this reliable guarantee of eternal glory, they would be, of all people, most miserable. And that's drawing a little bit off of the ultimate hope in the gospel, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says that if there is no resurrection, then we would be of the people who are most miserable. Because what does the reality of the resurrection proclaim again? That Christ made full satisfaction for the payment of sins that our sins demand. And so we can have assurance, and there are other things that, that contribute to that assurance, such as our desire for good works and the good works that we do. But ultimately, the ultimate source of our assurance is that Christ is risen, he's exalted, and he has done all that was required for us to be saved. Article 11, doubts concerning this assurance. Christians do doubt from time to time. It's not good that we doubt. I'm not wanting to say that. But there are sometimes ways in which we doubt our assurance. So Article 11 reads, Meanwhile, Scripture testifies that believers have to contend in this life with various doubts of the flesh, and that under severe temptation, they do not always experience this full assurance of faith and certainly of perseverance. But God... The Father of all comfort does not let them be tempted beyond what they can bear, but with the temptation, he also provides a way out, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And by the Holy Spirit revives in them the assurance of their perseverance. So in times then, when we are doubting our salvation, we should also remember the promises that are contained in the gospel, which are related to these four points that we've talked about in election and Christ's work in the atonement and the fact that we couldn't even want to have salvation because of our total depravity. If God's grace did not come into our life and impact us in such a way that we then desired him, that when temptations come and they feel like they're too much to bear, that the Holy Spirit also provides for us a means of keeping us through it and giving us a way out. And that way out, don't be mistaken, is not just try harder. It's not just, you know, be better. It's to look at Christ, to remember the promises of the gospel, to admit, God, I am weak. I can't do it on my own. I need you. I need you always. Every moment, I need you. I need thee, like we sing. Article 12, the assurance as an incentive to godliness. This assurance of perseverance, however, so far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured, that means, again, that we would be self-assured purely by our efforts. It says, is rather the root, the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness in cross-bearing and in confessing the truth, and a well-founded joy in God. Reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. Sometimes you'll hear pastors make two interesting errors here one time sometimes they'll say hey look at david you know be like david and they'll say you know they'll raise up david or moses or aaron as an example unto you and that you have to just work harder and try but then that's not a good idea then you have other times where pastors will say no 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 don't be like 
David, you know, look to look just only to Christ. And there's a good motive in that because they're not wanting us to simply be good for you know, goodness sake, as like the Christmas song goes, I guess. But they're wanting us to, but the reality is there should be a middle road in between that. The stories that we see in the Bible with David, with Moses, with the kings, with Josiah, we talked a little bit about this even last night in our discussion time. They are there to serve as an examples of some ways of what not to do and what to do. But we must, we must never look at them as our hope. And we must never look at them and say, oh, well, if they did it, I can do it, in that sort of way. We must always look at them through the filter of Christ, seeing that ultimately it's Christ is who we need and we rest in what he's done. But there are things that we can learn from the people, people in the Bible, what to do, what not to do. The example of the saints, as Article 12 says. Article 13, assurance, no inducement to carelessness. Neither does the renewed confidence of perseverance produce immorality or lack of concern for godliness in those put back on their feet after a fall, but it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways which the Lord prepared in advance. They observe these ways in order that by walking in them they may maintain the assurance of their perseverance, lest their abuse of God's fatherly goodness, the face of the gracious God, for the godly looking upon that face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death, Turn them away from them again, with the result that they fall into a greater anguish of spirit. So, reminding us that assurance isn't a license to sin. You would be misthinking and misrepresenting what the Bible tells us to think that, oh, well, I'm... And that, that's kind of the heart of that camp message and, and that misuse of eternal security, once saved, always saved, that if you just think that that's the case and I could just live any way that I want, you would be living in contrary to what Scripture says. Because when you're actually saved, you don't want to live any way that you want. You still sin, of course, but you go from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. You, there is a desire to be holy and to seek after God and all that you do. Article 14, God's use of means and perseverance. And just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by proclamation of the gospel, so God preserves, continues, and completes this work by the hearing and the reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by the use of the sacraments. It's not a lie that the way we live our lives as a Christian is going to impact our assurance of salvation. And you know, if there was a person who professed to be saved, but was in, entangled in some sin, was regularly missing the meetings of the gathered church, where the means of grace spoken of in Article 14 took place, then we wouldn't be surprised of his or her lack of assurance. It's not uncommon for true believers to have doubt. And that typically happens when there is some embracing of sin going on in their lives. And in the previous articles, Dort has covered how to deal with sin so that our assurance, when it is challenged, we're able to understand what's going on. But it's important to note what is mentioned in Article 10. The canons form assurance in the way that we don't get it through what's called private revelation beyond the word. So like a dream or vision from God or an angel or something like that. That's not where our assurance comes from. 
And so if assurance doesn't come from there, where does it come from? Well, three answers are given. One, assurance comes from the promises, uh, from faith in the promises of God. Two, assurance comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying to our, our spirit that we are children's, children of God. In other words, again, do you hear the voice of Jesus? Three, assurance comes from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. So three places, and the first is the most important. A Puritan once commented, I blanked on his name, but for every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And why is that? It's because assurance ultimately doesn't come from what we do, but what God has promised and what he has done. This is why doctrine matters. Because the Arminians believed that you could lose your salvation if you weren't diligent enough. And that makes sense in their system. Because at some level, they thought that they had ability. And in that, they did bring about salvation from a condition that they were meeting. But Reformed theology, or Calvinism, specifically corrects that and lines up with the word. Because there was no condition that was met in you for God to choose you. And Christ's atoning death in your place didn't merely make you savable, but it effectually propitiated God's wrath so that in time, when the atonement was applied to you, you didn't resist God's grace, but you found it to be lovely. And it had to be that way because before the new birth that you experienced, before you truly heard the voice of Jesus in the pages of scripture, you were by nature a child of wrath and at enmity with God, like we've talked about this, this weekend. So our assurance comes mostly, comes primarily, not from looking at ourselves, but from looking to Christ Jesus, what he's done, the, the success of what he has done. And when sin rears its head in your life and the, your assurance waxes and wanes and you begin to look at yourself, well, even in that, the Spirit is there to help you. This happens somewhat frequently, frequently to pastors where you'll have people doubting their salvation because of some sin that's causing them to struggle. But note, they're struggling. And so people come to pastors and they say, oh, I'm not sure that I'm saved because I'm struggling with this sin. And the response that often is quick to come out is, well, praise God, you're struggling with this sin. People who don't love the Lord don't really struggle with sin. Often they embrace it, they celebrate it. And when you are grieved over your sin and you're struggling against it and you're depending upon the Spirit's help to put it to death, that's the Spirit testifying to our spirits that we are the children of God. Because we agree with God that this is wrong, that this is not right. Now you know who doesn't really, again, struggle against sin? It's unsaved people. They love their sin. They celebrate it even. But when a person is struggling against sin, that's a good sign. That should build your assurance. And then lastly, where there is a pursuit of the things of God, that's the third way to obtain assurance. Now, the, the church is not plan B for God. The ministry that God has for us in the church is part of his means of giving him glory and helping us to live that victorious life in Christ that is available to us through the assurance that he provides to us. And that is played out through our involvement in the church body. The Apostle Peter writes about this, basing these actions 
of the previous action of God in saving you. <clears throat> and he says to these people who have been saved in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the result, of course, would be an additional source of assurance, reminding you that God is persevering to you, that you're seeking to grow in these ways. And that should even point you to that first source, because the one who is doing these things would be doing them in grace and bathing that whole pursuit in prayer. It's not by your own strength that you add knowledge to self-control and steadfastness to self-control and then steadfastness of godliness. That's done through the power that the Spirit gives unto you. So it's done through prayer as well. And then finally, I want to make some comments about Article 14, and then we'll stop with that one. I, I do appreciate the time that you guys have given me and to talk with you about this this weekend. So we'll, we'll end on 14, and 15 you could read um, later for your own benefit. So, the erroneous understanding that one can lose his or her faith isn't like some standing-alone doctrine that doesn't impact anything else. That should be clear already, that it has great impact upon what one thinks about salvation and the power of God to save. But more surprisingly, perhaps, is what it says about the church of God and therefore God's plan to sanctify his people who, is, who are the church. There is a, a great downplaying of and a near rejection of the sufficiency of God's plan in accomplishing his purposes that he intended to do in rejecting perseverance of the saints, which is a, a bit strange because certainly Arminians and even anti-Calvinists today would say that going to gather with the saints is a good thing. But what the Reformed at Dort recognized and put forward was that the church and gathering with his saints is a primary means that God uses to persevere his people, to preserve his people, to keep them in the faith so that they don't depart from it. Because it is with the gathered church that one is most often hearing the gospel and the preached word is where the sacraments are observed. And all of those things God uses to persevere us, to preserve us. God preserves, he continues and completes in us the faith through the ministry that he ordained to be in the church. And remember, God ordains the ends and he also ordains the means that contribute or lead to those ends. And so when one gathers with the church, number one, and here's the gospel read, and in doing so of that, God is feeding our souls. He's nourishing them to remind us of who Christ is and what it is, what it is that he's done. And the churches that are most prone to making the error of thinking that the gospel is only something that you need at the beginning of your faith, and from there, you just need to act a little bit better and work a little harder, are those, ironically, for whatever reason, who often reject Calvinism in part or in total. And in that, they fail to understand all of these major points of doctrine that we went over this weekend, and how in each of them, we're trained to look at Christ. Number one, 
uh, you know, the first night we talked about how we're dead in our sins and there's no help for us but to look to Christ and plead for mercy. And, and, we'll, and that's in total depravity. So look to Christ. Two, our election. God's choosing of us isn't based our performance on being good enough, but it's simply based on God's love and the pleasure of his will. So again, look to Christ. Our sins are fully paid for in Christ, and it doesn't require some action on our part to apply that atonement to us. It takes our eyes off ourselves in that regard. And then again, we look to Christ. And four, when we see grace as irresistible, it's then when we are truly humbled and value the work of Christ on our behalf, when we're made to see that grace is, is irresistible. Grace is not just something that exists out there in the air that, that only the smart grab a hold of and use like a tool to their advantage. No, grace humbles us and it brings us to the mercy seat of God that we might receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. And so again, Look to Christ. You're the unworthy recipient of sovereign grace if you're a Christian. And all of this looking to Christ is, is the way that Reformed theology orientates us. It's a means that God uses to preserve us, to keep us in the faith. Secondly, he uses exhortations, threats, and promises in the Bible as a means to preserve us. Again, this is why going to a biblically faithful church is important. Because rather than glossing over some of these difficult passages in the Bible, rather than skipping hard texts, God uses the faithful preaching of his word to persevere his people. And so these are real and true threats that the word contains. The exhortations of the word, which are ways in which God calls us to greater maturity and faithfulness in his word, uh, there are the, the threats, again, we shouldn't take them as empty threats. God does not make empty threats. They're real and true threats, even though we understand that when a person is saved, we'll always be saved. So, for example, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, professing to be saved, in other words, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a real threat. And from a quick reading of that passage, it sounds as if he's saying that, you know, once a person is saved, they lose that salvation. Well, they can't ever be saved again. Well, God's not making an empty promise there. There are those people who have been enlightened. That is, they taste the heavenly gift and have been present in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, as much as it's possible from a human perspective, these are people who at the time appear to be genuinely saved. They sit under preaching. They participate in the sacraments. They get baptized. They go up to the Lord's table and they partake of the wine and the bread. And we read here in Hebrews 4 or 6 that they some fall away never again to be restored to repentance. Does that mean that God hasn't preserved them? No. It means that they weren't actually saved in the first place because they didn't persevere in the faith. They went out from us because they were not of us. 1 John 2, 19 but God uses these threats in Scripture to preserve the truly saved because we read them and we take them seriously. 
because we know that God is true and he does not lie. They remind us in the beginning that the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. And God using, uses these texts in the saved and those who Christ has atoned for to awaken us to our sin and to remind us of the gospel promises therein. And that's also the third category as well. The promises of God's word are a means of preserving us. It's not hard to imagine that even a Christian, through hard times and tribulations, can be discouraged. We've all been there most likely, and if you haven't yet, you will at some point. Contrary to many popular teachers and preachers, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that all of your problems will disappear. But what it does mean is that you can bring those burdens to the Lord, and he sanctifies you through them. And so the, the promises of every blessing in Christ Jesus, when you're discouraged because you know in your heart that in whatever has gone on, you didn't meet the standard that is required in God's law, the promises of God in his word are a sweet encouragement to you. God does not go back on his promises. That which he establishes in his covenant, we can be assured that he will do. And that encourages us and is used of God to prevent us from turning our back on him, which is what our flesh wants to do. And that brings us to the last benefit of the church. For it's where the sacraments are observed. Both sacraments declare to us what God has done, putting again our eyes on Christ and reorientating our focus on where it matters. So the first sacrament that we think of is baptism. We're being reminded in baptism of Christ's promise to those who have union with him that the penal substitutionary death of his, of his son on the cross truly satisfied his wrath against our sin. And so Christ died and was buried as is pictured in baptism. And then that righteous life of Christ is ours in a legal sense as well. So we stand before God depending on nothing but Christ and his merits. Because Christ didn't stay dead. Death had no hold on him because he was without guilt. He was truly righteous. And baptism reminds us of these things as well when we come up out of the water in the declaration of these truths as they are administered to the individual as well. That's why baptism as a sacrament is more than just about the person who's being baptized. It is certainly about God's promise unto them and their faith in, in Christ and what he's done. But it's also a reminder to the whole church as well of what God has done and the promise that he has done for us as well. And then there's the Lord's Supper, where we partake of the wine and bread, which represents his blood and body. And in doing so, we aren't simply just remembering that he died for us. He did so. He did do that. And it does remind us of that. But there's more. It's something that we eat and drink because we are in the new covenant with Christ. It's a covenant ceremony, really. And when he instituted it, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so we're reminded and participating that we are in a covenant with God, a covenant in which he promises to take us from being predestined all the way to glorification, not based on what we've done, but based upon what Christ has done in his merits, apart from our works and apart from any condition in us that we were required to meet. And so we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, knowing that we have sin that remains and that that sin is even unpleasing to the Lord. But the reminder of God's great love to us in his gospel through it is a means of strengthening us. And that contributes to God persevering us. 
So the exhortations in the word, the threats in the word, the gospel preached in the word, that all happens at church, and then even the sacraments that happen at, at church, God uses these things to persevere us. The church is, is, is simply a part of the Christian's life. And so I, I hope you guys see that these five points aren't some doctrines that seek to divide or to produce arrogance in some. That, that sometimes happens is not a, a feature of the doctrine, doctrines themselves, but it's a, a bug because of sin. The point of Dort was to correct abhorrent teaching that was growing in the church. They saw it as a step back to Rome, which certainly confused law and gospel categories. But it's a statement to bring out unity and to remind us to look to Christ. When we think of all of these different points, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints, we are reminded in them that our hope and even our joy is to always look to Christ, who he is and what it is that he has done for us. And that is what I would have all of you to do. It's what I imagine any minister in, of the gospel in any capacity or function would want as well, for all to look to Christ. Because Christ, in Christ, the fullness of God dwells, and every promise of God is yes and amen in him. Let's pray. Great and holy God, we do thank you for our time together this weekend. and We want to take your word seriously, Lord. We want to understand it as you would have us to understand it. And so we ask for grace that you would give us understanding, illuminating our hearts and our minds that we might see the truth that you have revealed. We do praise you for giving us a weekend together. And we thank you for the fun that we were able to have. And we pray that you would cause us to think about your word with a greater zeal and passion even when we go back home lord we do pray for our church family back at home we pray that the teaching would go well in sunday school and that the church would be encouraged and exhorted and would grow in assurance through the preaching of your word in the morning service and in the afternoon service as well may you be exalted and please lord get us home safely and help us to be thankful unto you for all that you do even in light of the the difficulties brought in our lives through the sin that we commit, as well as just the difficulties of living in a fallen world, the things that make us sad, Lord. We are glad to know that you are sovereign and working providentially through all of these things. May you help us to always have our eyes set upon Christ. Teach us and train us to look to Christ all the more. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, guys. So... We do have 